Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. As part of our Crux Insight series, we're delighted today to be speaking to Mark Kenwright. He's an associate director at Wardell Armstrong. Now, companies like us, banks, and even the companies themselves, hire people like Mark to do competent persons reports, amongst other things. So basically, diligencing mining companies to understand whether they're investable or not. We discuss a lot of topics in the conversation. I hope you like what you're about to hear. Please leave your comments on either Twitter, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and of course, probably most easily on YouTube. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Mark, how are you? I'm great, thank you, and yourself? Yeah, good. Well, I'm really excited because I've been wanting to help investors understand the sorts of you know professional institutional level type of diligence that goes on in the background and now Wardell Armstrong name well known to most of us in the industry um, I've got a chance to talk to you so thank you that's uh, our pleasure well okay why don't we kick up and uh, help people understand you know what is Wardell Armstrong and what is their place in the market in relation to mining uh, I mean, the Wardle Armstrong Group's been going, I think, since 1837, so a very long time. One of the oldest uh, consultancies. We've got 13 offices in the UK, one in Moscow, one in Almaty in Kazakhstan. The Wardle Armstrong International, which is what I'm part of, we focus on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the mining, exploration, metallurgy, geology, social side of mining. Uh, most 90, 95% of our work is all offshore. So in Africa, in Middle East, Russia, CS countries, we have interestingly because of the, the whole lithium sort of space started to do more work both here locally on our doorstep in Cornwall, but also in places like Spain and, uh, and uh, other markets that have become perhaps a bit more active recently is the uh, Eastern Europe. Right. So yeah, we were involved from desktop studies all the way through to due diligence, scoping studies, pre-feasibility, feasibility closure. The only thing we don't do is we don't build mines. Right. Uh, but we do everything else. Okay. So let's, again, help this, the, the retail audience, retail investors understand why companies hire you. Because mining is about risk mitigation. Finance, financing uh, mining operations is about risk mitigation. You need to know what you're walking into. So what, are you, what is your typical brief from these companies when they hire you? Typically, uh, we, we would get involved where a company would, lead, would need a, a competent person's report for listing an IPO listing at, in London, or either the main exchange or the, um, the AIM exchange or in Australia or Canada or Hong Kong or wherever. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we, we do a fair bit of uh, that sort of CPR listing, which involves all the disciplines from geology and mining and, and everything else. Um, but we also would get involved in and go out uh, and get involved in uh, expert witness type work. So we'd have to do a site visit. But then the bread and butter would be your um, scoping studies, desktop studies and, and due diligence where somebody, as an example, a few years ago um, for a country I won't name or a company I won't name, but we had to do a due diligence on some mining assets because a company was going to give a loan to them, but they wanted an offtake agreement as part of that loan. Mm. So they want to ensure that the asset and the management and the plant and the mining and everything else can produce the metal that they want against that loan. Um, so we really bring a wide range of expertise. I personally have got 
24 years experience. We've got a few youngsters, but there's a lot of gray haired people here who've got, you know, 25, 30, 35 years plus experience. Um, so I've worked all over the world, lived in Africa for 18 years, been back in the UK now for seven years. Um, so it's really bringing that that depth of experience and the range of experience. Right. Um, so, so let's bring it down into real real life um, examples sure. for people. Because, you know, when we've used companies like yourself um, in India and South America, we're trying to protect our investment. We're trying to make sure we're not going to put money into a situation <clears throat> where we're going to lose yeah. it. And, you know, and to a, 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 it's, it's a much more detailed analysis and diligence than mm. perhaps most retail or family office or high net worth might go into. But, you know, when you're deploying 100 million bucks, you want to yeah. make sure that things are as they say they are. So let's talk about a competent person's report, okay? And it sounds like quite a light touch, but it's not. So no. talk about some of the components that you drill down into, please. Well, um, <clears throat> the, the basis for everything within a mining project is obviously the, the mineral resources. So you would obviously have to check right from the start. And that means typically ha uh, having access to a data room where you would access with, we would examine the data room, sorry, the, the, the drill hole database, um, and especially look at the, um, the overall mineral resource estimate and the quality assurance, uh, quality control, the QAQC checks, which typically would involve standards, blanks, and, and duplicates. Um, and you would want to see a range of five to 10% insertion rate. So if somebody takes 100 samples from one drill hole, you would have an extra five, 10 samples inserted at regular or even irregular um, positions. So to see if the lab is doing their job correctly. So you want to make sure that all of those aspects are correct. So it starts with the mineral resource estimate. Mm -hmm. Uh, you would examine briefly the uh, exploration history. You'd examine, obviously, all of their, typically you'd examine their standard operating procedures. So did they do what they say they do? There's nothing worse as a, as a consultant going on site and somebody say, yeah, every 10th sample we insert, a, we insert a blank or a standard duplicate, and they don't do that. They've just shot themselves in the foot there. So do what you say you're going to do. Uh, me as a consultant saying to, to our client, have you done what you've said you were going to do? Mm -hmm. um, now, I might disagree with what they've said they're going to do. I might say, no, you need every 10th sample, every 20th sample, if they've done every 50th or whatever their standard is. But their standard is their standard. So that's the first thing you want to do. Yep. The second thing is obviously make sure that there's no fatal flaws. So yes, you could have a, a gold project, obviously, but is the gold wrapped up in our CNR pyrite? Is it uh, is it recoverable? Um, when they did the mineral resource estimate, did they use the right search parameters? Did they do some basic geostatistics? Did they log the core properly? You will literally physically log the core, relog the core, or a, a sample of those, and make sure that what they're saying is, you know. A granite is a granite or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So it start, and that's done in every uh, department, as it were. Um, so me as a geologist, my sort of expertise is in uh, exploration and uh, in sort of project management, large exploration programs, $30 million exploration programs, large teams. So I know what to look for uh, when somebody says, yes, they've done X, Y, Z in geology. If we are getting called out and somebody is doing drilling, 
they're expending the resource and they want somebody to sign off on the new resources. I always want to be there within a day, within a day or two of them having started that drilling program to again make sure when they're drilling, the driller's doing what they should be doing and the geologist at the drill site is doing what they're doing. So it's really trying to make sure that ideally an excellent standard is met, but at the very least, you know, a good standard is met. Right. So, so, so that's the asset. That's yes. the asset. What about all of the other things that you look at when you're trying to assess or diligence a project? You know, so certainly in the in, in country in terms of the jurisdictional risk. So, well, uh, ordinarily a company like Wardell wouldn't do a, a legal due diligence, but we would examine the the mineral title documents. Uh, we would briefly uh, look at the the mining law within that jurisdiction to make sure they're in compliance. When they're, you know, if it's a, if it's an exploration project or mining project, when the when the license uh, terminates, as an example, uh, because uh, one of the things that we we uh, discovered in say Russia, people had a, a mineral, uh, sorry, a mining ore reserve past the date of their mineral license, so all those ore reserves had to be in effect discounted to zero because you don't have the right legally at that time to mine them. So you would do those sort of sense checks um but you would also obviously examine the mining plan the the uh, the mine design uh, and a, a very basic level well, sorry a, a, a fairly detailed level what parameters went into the pit optimization of the underground what was the gold or the commodity price what were the recovery factors what were the mining costs what were the gna costs what were the royalties the taxes so you do get quite granular in mm. those things you want to examine their uh, financial model but you would typically also create your own financial model and you can um everybody's fighting to make their project as, as uh, attractive as possible you can obviously get into shall we say some robust discussions about commodity prices or, or, or recoveries but as a consultant we have to err on the side of caution as as you said right at the start about the questions of the risk okay. so so let me yeah. let me ask you yeah. let, me, let me ask you this mark um are you ever influenced by the company in terms of the way that you write your reports is there any reason to doubt the veracity of what you're saying you can get into a situation where, um, as an example, a company says, oh, we, we, we've got this one test that shows 80% recovery, but the overall test might show 65%. So you can disclose both those figures, but clearly you have to, as a consultant, and somebody who, remember, we have to take professional indemnity insurance as well as, as, well as our brand or our name uh, risk as well. So we we as a as a company again always have to err on the side of caution. Now there are ways and means you can skin a cat, there are ways and means you can write something perhaps more positive or less positive, but we have to disclose disclose the issues right. at hand. With, with it with the with the Jork Code twenty twelve, the most recent version of that came out, there's the table one at the very end that very few people look at. But within that there's a principle of if not why not. If, if you're not talking about something or if you didn't do something, you have to disclose why. So that's actually a very useful table for investors to look at. Okay. Because that's okay. that granularity, basically. Okay. So without wanting to get, get, you know, get into the depths of the competent person's report, um, you would say if, and sorry, let me ask, 
do companies have to disclose the competent person uh, report details as, as part of their um, as part of the uh, whenever they list regulations? On, 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 yeah, well, whenever you list on the stock exchange, the CPR, the competent person report, is within that, those listing document uh, within those listing documents in full detail. So, in full detail, typically uh, with appendices, etc. Now, just one one other point, uh, and it's a very valid point, and I'd, I'd like to make a couple of points um, about the competent person's report, or even a feasibility study. There's always a competent person in their field. I'm a competent person as a geologist. I'm not as a metallurgist or mining engineer. So you will typically have six or seven or ten competent persons having compiled a competent person or a feasibility study. But you will typically have, and in our case, it's uh, Dr. Phil Mule, who is the MD of Wardell. He would typically review all of those reports and be the overall lead person. But we we personally have to take that responsibility. Um, I am a fellow of the OSAMM. I'm also a chartered professional geologist. I'm also on their list of uh, the register of consultants. You will obviously get some uh, requests for oh don't put this in or do put that in or whatever but at the end of the day it's taken me 24 years to get to the position i'm at i'm not going to lose my reputation or be disciplined by osmm or any other body to then lose that accreditation because it's quite difficult to get you know so you have your own internal professionalism as well as the company now having said all that people can make mistakes there was a very interesting report done by the Ontario Stock Exchange or Securities Commission, I think it was, sorry, in 2013, where they examined 50 uh, feasibility studies or, or reports. And I think 40% of them had fatal flaws. Fatal? What they were considered fatal flaws. What was a fatal flaw? Things that hadn't been done. Now, they, they didn't disclose who they were or what they were, but the point is, is that even if it's got the words NI43101 report written on it or feasibility study, you still have to read it yourself and take a judgment, number one. And the other point is about feasibility studies. You can get a negative re result with the feasibility study. People think, oh, it's got a feasibility study. It's a great project. It's not always the case. So you do have to take the time to read those. At the very least, the uh, if I could say, if, if you've got limited time and you've got 15 reports, read, read, read the executive summary, read the conclusions and recommendations and skim through the... Uh, the job table one and obviously you should read great yeah. okay great, great recommendation look and, and t today's session is about just touching upon a few Go. topics and you kindly agree to be you know part of a series where we can deep dive into some of these topics moving forward and of course people will send in their ideas suggestions thoughts questions as yeah. well so don't, you know I, I do appreciate that so um that says to me, people, the information is there. Do your homework. People like you have spent a lot of time, effort, and experience in putting these reports together. And the, conclu the conclusions are quite easy to find if, if you want to find them. Okay. So, let's not, I, well, actually, just finish with one question. How, how much money do companies pay typically for one of a competent person's report? And how long do they take to put together? Um. A competent person's report, if it's a single asset, like a single gold mine or project, uh, could cost anywhere from £50,000 to £150,000. Mm. Um, it really depends on how much information there is, how much information you have to do. If somebody says, here's a database and here's some reports that bought it of a project, we have to do everything, then it's going to cost a fair amount of time and it will take four, six months, maybe even eight months. Mm. If a company says, 
we've got all this information we've built up ourselves we just need you to review it uh, sign off on the mineral resource estimate the oil reserves and and make sure you're happy and come to some conclusions recommendations with metallurgy as well as obviously the very important environmental social and all the rest of it that can be a lot shorter uh, but right. you know to do a competent person's report uh, especially if it's listing on the stock exchange where it could go back and forwards with the authorities it's a good two three four five months it's, a, it's an interesting point actually because when we when we pay for them in the past you know we, we've had all sorts of quotes thrown at us and um i, I kind of like the reassuringly expensive ones because it <laughs> suggests that more work has gone into it we you know we've been offered reports as low as twenty five thousand dollars which Makes me nervous because that literally yes. seems like a ticking tick box exercise and, and a signature. But look, let's let's do more of that another another day. Some of the um, other topics that we are going to discuss going forward will be, you know, the lithium market. I think you mentioned earlier, perhaps some of the things which are going on in the in the DRC. Um, you've obviously got the IOM three conference coming up next week, which you you guys are at. Um, yes, give, give, uh, just give us a quick overview of that because people might find that interesting. Certainly, some of the content on the website is so. Sure, uh, it's a two-day conference hosted in London by IMO3. Um, it's the title is uh, "Mining in the Electric Vehicle." There's a whole host of, uh, of um, presenters. I'm one of them. I'll be talking on uh, basically the, the cobalt and, and the electric vehicle supply, demand, some of those aspects, which are very interesting. Um, and then we have a uh, gentleman, uh, Dr. Chris Broadbent, who's also with uh, Wardell, um, and uh, Christine Blackmore, who's the chair of uh, one of the committees. Um, to your listeners, there is a 10% uh, discount if they go onto the register and use the, the code POD10. Um, so there are still some spaces available. I highly encourage people to go along. It's not expensive for two days, um, and there's even uh, I think a Thames riverboat trip for a bit of uh, socialising on the Wednesday evening. So, oh well, there you go. Well, that's, that's very very kind of you. Um, wasn't yeah. expecting that. So for, so people interested in the mining and electric vehicle space, which I think is obviously hugely topical at the moment. Lots of companies talking about how they are going to contribute to the electric vehicle revolution. Yeah. Um, we shall see. So that's on. What, what, that's on next week. It's the twenty ninth and thirtieth. Twenty ninth and thirtieth. Okay. Well, we'll be sure to put that out um, as, part, as part of this. Um, no difficult oh, questions, please. <laughs> that's exactly what our our uh, viewers and subscribers come up with, uh, as they should. Um, Mark, if I may, um, can we talk about something which um, is very topical at the moment? With certainly some of our contributors have put articles in on our platform on cruxinvestor.com which is what's going on in western africa okay so i'm throwing we haven't discussed this i'm throwing this at you is um there's a lot of information about you know terrorist incursion in, in some countries and and if i look at some of uh presentation from srk which you know suggests that it's the problem's just getting worse and there's some countries along that kind of western uh, yeah. Coast of Africa, which are suffering, you know, the pe- pe- people are being um, dislocated. Mm. Um, people are dying, um, yeah. and businesses obviously being impacted. Then I refer to Semafo uh, before mm. Christmas, um, the attack there: thirty-seven dead, sixty injured. I'm talking about attacks in uh, Mali: seventy soldiers uh, killed, yeah. uh, and one last week: eighty-six soldiers 
killed by ISGS. So that's Islamic State Grand, um, uh, Grand Sahara, I think it is, mm-hmm. or Great Sahara. Um, it's been coming for a while. And I was, I've been talking to a few CEOs recently, you know, with interest in the area. They're nervous, of course, um, about what may what may come. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's important that people understand this. Is that an area that you have looked at, that you are aware of, that, you, you know, is part of your discussions when you're yeah, doing it, your work? Whenever we, as Waddle Armstrong, and I'm sure other companies like SOK, whoever, whenever you go to anywhere, really, we, ha- we actually, for our insurers, have to do what we call a risk assessment. And part of that, one of the very basic standard things you have to do is you go to the FCO website and see, look at their colored maps. And it is shocking, unfortunately, that how quickly uh, things have deteriorated in Burkina Faso. I've been to Burkina Faso four or five times, uh, completed six feasibility studies for uh, Nord Gold subsidiaries there. Um, And since I've been going there since 2013, I think it is. And when you look at when you go back and look at those those maps where you have uh, the FCO saying, you know, the red area, don't go unless, you know, and then you have the, the orange area and the green area where it's sort of safe. Mm. Um, uh, I, I spoke uh, to uh, Joe Feifel from SRK, who's the head of security at the Arab and Africa conference that I also presented at last year. Mm. And in discussions with him, I sort of coined the phrase, the carbonization of Burkina Faso. Because I'm sure you know in Afghanistan, sort of the security forces hold Kabul and maybe 50 or 100 k's around it, and everything else is bandit country. Yeah. And there's an element of that at Burkina Faso. Now, having said all of that, and absolutely terrible, shocking the attacks both last year and more recently, and the displacement of uh, of people. I mean, there's been I think 650,000 Burkina Faso people displaced with that. I mean, it's you hardly hear about that unless you go looking for it or you live in that country or you're involved in that space. Um, but you can still operate, believe it or not, in those countries. I mean, Iron God have got Eskan Mine in the north. Now they're able to operate. Why? Uh, how, how, why can they operate? If you're talking about this well, dislocation of, of, of people, of these incursions, you've got deaths, yeah. not just of you know security and, and and police and army but you know in churches and schools it, it, it sounds horrific and i say if you don't go looking for this it's not no. much talked about here it, you know no. in in Euro- european press but you go and read any of the african press it's everywhere so how do yeah. companies continue to work see it's a little bit like uh, and i lived in northern ireland when i did my first degree it's a little bit like northern ireland Life goes on in lots of these places, with the exception of the very north, these places where people are just scared and running for their lives. But there are these terrorist attacks, but they're infrequent. It's not, I'm sure there are some that are every day or whatever, but the very big attacks that make the news are sporadic and infrequent and unfortunately have an, a high impact, both in you know the loss of life and all the rest of it. But um, as I said, there's, there's Essacan is operating. Uh, there's also Nordgold. We've got a couple of mines, Bissar and Tobacco. They're still operating. You've got to get the security right, the risk analysis right. And when I go, when I've been, we will travel typically with two uh, land cruisers, an armed guard in both, and no fanfare, no big convoys. So people don't know unless obviously somebody does a phone call, you know, which obviously, thank God, hasn't happened so far. So you've got to get that security analysis risk and mitigation in place and unfortunately that you know i mean the, perhaps the worst thing about that 
and no, looking from the outside, I've not worked with uh, the semaphore, and I don't want to badmouth them or anybody else. But the, that they were attacked twice in effectively the same place. You know, lessons weren't learned, and, and of course, I'm sure they've learned those lessons now. But um, you know, going forward, you know, it, you might have to, as an exploration geologist, travel with a bulletproof land cruiser, literally one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. And there's other areas I know of projects uh, not too far from Essekan gold projects sitting there but you know you can't go and explore or work there for the moment because of the issues so until things settle down it's going to the bikini okay so so you think that the the big guys with revenues enough to pay for security adequate security should be fine could be fine we hope both of all three of those yes right okay but obviously exploration with limited budgets it's going to be tough to develop projects yeah, i mean there was also that canadian geologist who was killed last yeah. year i think he was killed 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers from the Essekan mine in a national park. Yeah. That's uh, so what I heard. And again, I don't want to talk, but yes, um, you've got to you've got to be careful. I mean, we as Ward Armstrong, we will go to these places if we know the company and if they can demonstrate that they've got a track record. And obviously, we're happy with their with their uh, security. Um, we have a standing rule. First thing the managing director says to you is, if you're not comfortable going to someone you won't go. So we, we have that internal sort of uh, level of... <laughs> I think it, 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 thus it has always been. I've worked in 25 countries in Africa, you know, large infrastructure projects, you know, looking at, you know, oil-backed sovereign wealth fund type structures. And we always had armed security wherever we went. And this was before, I think, things have, you know, taken a slight turn for the, turn for the West, you know, with the yeah. ISIS and ISGS operating in the region. So it was always uh, prudent to, to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think now, more than ever, I think invest, you know, retail investors, you know, they, when they read about these things, trying to wonder, what is the impact? Should they, or can they still invest in these regions safely? Because if you look what happened to Semifrice, share price obviously went down to about 20% of its, I think it's back up to about half now, but went down to 20% of its, of its previous price. Shareholders are left with losses, huge losses, and wondering, well, you know, does this change? And again, the conversations with CEOs who have companies, operations in their region, are very nervous. You know, their security forces are telling them, this has been coming for 10 years. This is getting worse. But if large companies, you know, can protect themselves by spending money on, on security, is what I'm hearing from you, operations can continue you know production does continue then investors can take some modicum of comfort from that um but what happens when these groups work out that will maybe as has happened in you know various oil fields around the world and again we you know we've been part of that there's money to be made so there's ideological beliefs yeah. and then there's kind of quite frankly criminal enterprise and those two things sometimes go hand in hand. So I'm con- I, I'm trying to understand it for, for our investments. We've got investments in the region, and I, we, I'm trying to understand it for our viewers and saying, you know, sure. is their money safe? Is there opportunity? Should they see opportunity here and invest? I think I think you've got to look at um, the management of people. It's interesting. Um, I. Uh, you probably heard of a guy called Danny Callow, who is uh, ex Glencore guy. He's now with a, a big, a big, a very attractive-looking mining project in Mali. 
they have ground, I think, in Burkina Faso, and he has publicly stated that they won't be going there until things settle down. So you've got to have management with that maturity and wisdom to really understand what they can and can't do. The other interesting thing as a sort of quite understandable reaction to the Semaphore attack and other attacks also in the future is contracting companies. I think it was it was ALS, they just called force majeure and walked away. So you could have an asset, Is that, are you gonna have that, those people to run, run the mine for you, the equipment? Um, so all of these things I'm sure are doable, but it will come at an extra cost. It will come at the extra studies. You know, it used to be, even now perhaps, you know, security is almost like a, a throwaway, oh yes, security will be operated within, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I suspect very soon that's going to be a full section on its own within, a, within some of these studies. If people need to walk into this with their eyes open, because it's their money at risk, um, you know, and, and, that, and that's, this, is what the, this is the name of the game. We're, we're trying to make money, and if you're putting money at risk, that's, that's a problem. If I could just add one last thing, I mean, we've been uh, you know, talking about Senator quite a bit. In, in their defense, and I've never spoken with the guys, I don't know anything, they wouldn't have operated in a vacuum either. You know, the Burkina Faso government, the security armed forces that were with them would have done, I'm sure, their own assessment. So, yeah, it's, there's, I think if there's fingers to be pointed, I'm sure it's not just at one place, let me just put it that way. Oh, I, I, no, absolutely. But again, we, you know, we're, 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 we're talking about a, a region-wide issue it's not just Burkina Faso so, you know Mali's got its own issues the north of you know Benin Cameroon's got huge issues you know that all of the you know, northern sections of you know Nigeria uh, you know Ghana etc these have got problems it's a question of how does it affect operating businesses does it affect yeah. operating businesses and if it and you know hopefully it doesn't um, you know, what measures and what cost will those measures take to ensure continued operational yeah. success, which I guess is, again, part of what you offer, part of your services. Yeah. And, you know, this, I think you said it's a large area. I measured it on Google. It's 4,000 kilometers by 600 to 1,200 kilometers. And that whole region has its own sort of independence, nationalistic political over, overtures as well that are part of the whole mix. So it's going to take a sort of holistic approach to solve that. Oh, oh, oh yeah, no, it's, it's, it's huge. I think what people don't realise about m- most of uh, Africa, you've kind of got these country boundaries, but mo- most countries are tribal. You know, I was in South Sudan when it was first uh, made a country and went to war three times within the first two years. Uh, tri- you know, tri- the tribal component should not be ignored. Uh, it's the same yeah. in Cameroon, Nigeria, the whole, the whole, the whole, you know, of that region is is uh, affected by, uh, tri- you know, how these tribes get on with each other, That's and right. I think the, re- the religious component is obviously making a huge yeah. impact. The one we'd understand, uh, economic rationale, as you know, and and the disenfranchised youth. So there's a lot of yeah. moving parts here, and you know, one needs to understand the country risk is more than just the geological risk, but it's as you said. Legal mining code um, uh, is 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 critical. It's the pol- political environment uh, is mm-hmm. is important, right. you know, and um, you know, and you know, are are the people, and the nation behind mining operations in those countries? So, like, but, and, uh, again, a big topic for an, uh, 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 an, yeah. another day. Um, can we touch upon 
you you talked about lithium, and I, I know you're down in Cornwall, sunny Cornwall, from from the looks of it yes. behind you. Very nice. I'm very jealous. Um, you, you've got it. You've got, is it. Is it Cornish Lithium? Is that the local one, or are there Cornish are many? There's another company, Matampa, that's been in the news recently. Oh, very so, good. Uh, okay. I'm sure there's others as well. So uh, yeah, it's certainly um, it's bringing investment into the area, which is great. Yeah, that's, and that's obviously on the back of of South Crofty and uh, you know the tin the tin play the project the feasibility that they're doing there. So yeah, yeah, and uh, obviously with the um, hopefully the resuscitation of uh, the Hemmerden mine, um, also just outside Plymouth. So this region's receiving some investment, which is very welcome. In, in, indeed, in fact, we talked to a Cornish gold miner uh, just for, before Christmas as well. So it's it's all happening down in Cornwall. Um, but let's let's talk about lithium. So, what's your take on the lithium uh, market uh, today? Obviously, pr- you know, prices are depressed. Uh, some companies are struggling to raise cash to kind of move things forward to develop the their asset. Um, are you getting many phone calls from lithium companies, apart from the, locally? Um, and what's, what's your take on, on the whole space? Uh, yes, I mean we have uh, we've worked with some of the companies that we, we mentioned just in passing. Now we've also worked with companies in sort of the the, the Portugal Spain space. So it is um, it is an area that we've had uh, work work and projects in. Perhaps more just more recently, the last six months, perhaps less. But there are some ongoing projects. Um, I'm not actually the expert on that. Really, the person you should speak to is Dr. Uh, Chris Broadbent. Perhaps we can raise that in the future. But um, I think um, it's going to be, I think, a growth market. But I suspect the the crux is really the plants to convert the ore. Um, I think that's perhaps where the bottleneck is. Um, and obviously, everybody's got to compete on price and quality with you know the the sort of South American uh, salt uh, operations. Uh, when you're going hard rock mining, um, such as in Spain and Portugal, that part it's you know it's it's more cost. If you're looking at uh, companies like Cornish Lithium, they're obviously looking at a, perhaps something quite unique in the, extracting the lithium that contained within from the water. So they've obviously got uh, they've done a very good job, I think, tying up a lot of those rights. Um, and I suppose it's really they've got to demonstrate the the next phase, the metallurgy side of things. You know. Right. Okay. But, but so the, the the calls are still coming in. People are still intrigued by lithium. I think so. You view lithium as a well. I'm, I'm just I'm just interested. I know I know I should speak with Chris. Uh, yes. I, I will speak with Chris about it. But the the general take from your department, um, the international team, is that lithium is here to stay. I think I think it might take a bit of time to bubble up and, and really come up, um, okay. if it maybe put it that way. Um, I mean, you've had that big sort of explosion and lots of interest, uh, but now the realism's got to set in. And I think also, um, you know, there's the the estimates from some analysts, and I'm sure people like myself as well, from when they say, "Oh yeah, this project will come online to reality." There's a bit of a gap there. You know, there's some people say, "Oh, this this mine will come in, in two years' time." be five years it could be seven years and all those things are going to impact supply and demand fundamentals right okay well chris i think that's our first conversation you've promised to come back on i hope you do because i yeah. do i do i would love to get into the detail of some Absolutely, of yeah. these topics and more that you guys look at and, and, and why i think that's important is because you're effectively doing a much more detailed version of what i think retail investors and family yeah. officers should do themselves and if you can give us some clues as to where to go and look 
and maybe how to interpret that data, what some of the red flags are, you know, if, if sure. certain things are in place that, you know, are possibly destructive to value, is, we'd love to know. Yeah, I mean, there is lots of uh, publicly available information and uh, perhaps one that people haven't explored um, is LinkedIn. Um, I mean, it's a great, I, I, I sort of refer to it as a professional version of Facebook. But um, if you're wanting to invest in, say, an operating mine, if you go onto LinkedIn and just, you know, find out who the chief geologist is, or the mining manager, or the general manager, or the finance director, whoever it is, and just see how long they've been there, or perhaps who was there before. I mean, if you see a high churn of staff, that could either mean, oh, oh dear, things are going wrong, or maybe the GM is uh, perhaps overly aggressive, shall we say, or not liked. Or it could be also, when I worked at uh, Sadiolia Telemines, we had a high turnover of staff, not because things were going wrong, but because the life of mine was two, three years from then. So people obviously are looking after their own careers and saying, oh, this place is going to close in two years. I better move now to a promotion or a, a project that's got a longer life. So there can be very re varied reasons for why people could be joining or leaving a project. But I think looking at that and examining someone's experience, you know, somebody like me, if they looked at my LinkedIn profile, you'll see a whole range of things. I've, I've typically moved every couple of years. Seven years I've been with Wardell. It's the longest I've been with any company, actually. Now, some people might view that as a negative and some as a positive. I've got, as I said, that wide range of experience. Somebody's been on one mine for 20 years. I'm sure they know that mine inside out, but they might not have um, some of the innovative uh, experience that I've got from I could bring to play uh, to that to that project that they might have so I think looking at LinkedIn looking at the experience of the people on the staff um, you know looking at how long is the, the life of mine all of those aspects as well as the public the available reports well we are going to get into that in the coming weeks and months aren't we great Brilliant. Look, Mark, thank you very much for your time. Um, I do appreciate that. Like I say, I'm really excited to be talking with Wardell Armstrong and, and your international team specifically, because I think, I say, I, if you can help us identify those red flags, the reasons why people shouldn't be investing, and then also maybe some of the reasons why they should, that'll help us immensely. So thank you for your time. Pleasure. And hopefully I'll see you at the, uh, the Mining Electric Vehicle Conference next week. You will, sir. You will for sure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.